soul, I summon to the winding ancient stair. Set all your mind upon the steep ascent, upon the broken, crumbling battlement, upon the breathless starlit air, upon the star that marks the hidden pole. Fix every wandering thought upon that quarter where all thought is done. Who can distinguish darkness from the soul? So wrote William Butler Yeats, low those many years ago, when talking about the winding stair. And, well, perhaps that relates to our conversation this evening. Tonight we're going to be thinking about the concept of revolution. And obviously this is something, this is a term and a concept that comes up quite a bit in the alternative media as people talk about alternative ways of thinking about our government and about the way that our society is being run and the way that we're living our lives. Uh, We're often talking about revolution in one form or another, but what is it that we're really talking about and do we have the what it takes to actually affect uh, a revolution if if such a thing is really even possible? And uh, that's quite a tall ar- order of business for tonight, but let's try tackling it. And here to help us do that is our old friend Aaron Franz of uh, Transresistor Radio. And, of course, uh, he's found at theageoftransitions.com. So, Aaron Franz, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Corbett Report Radio. Thank you for having me here, James. I'm very excited to uh, be speaking with you again. Well, I am excited to have you here. Obviously, this is your second time on on Corporate Report Radio now, so uh, listeners hopefully will be familiar with you. If not, of course, they can check the archives of CorbettReport.com to find our previous conversations. They can also, of course, check out TheAgeOfTransitions.com, where they will also find uh, uh, the ability to purchase your book, Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood, and that's rather on topic for tonight's conversation. I notice you have a couple of different images of revolve in your in your just the, uh, on the cover itself. The, you have the snake, the Ouroboros, eating its own tail, and of course you have the winding stair. Uh, perhaps we can talk about the root of revolution, which is really that word revolve. What what is lost in the fact that we we have lost the the root meaning of this word and where it really comes from? Um, yes, well, uh, revolve itself is. Um the root word of revolution, if we're going to talk about revolution, uh, just uh, look at the simple term alone is important because a revolution is a turning of a circle. It's, it's a circular motion. The return of um, a body in motion to a starting point. And of course, you know, celestial bodies have uh, circular uh, paths around the sun you know, planets go around the sun, they revolve around. So it's this idea, um, it's, it's actually, um, the, uh, a natural process because the planets revolving around the sun is a natural process. And sort of the ideological notion of revolution is inspired by nature. And the idea is returning to a perfect natural point, sort of like, a the lost Eden state. Like we, when things start building up and going so wrong throughout society, the revolutionary comes forward and says, we need to return back to that natural starting point and we'll start building up again. So that's basically the starting point of revolution. And there's, there's so many areas to jump off of just there, on, 
There are so many that I'm sure we're going to have to spend some time exploring them tonight and we'll only begin to scratch the surface, of course, with a mind-bogglingly big topic like this. But you do raise the specter of uh, the the natural cycles and and that sort of revolution, like uh, we often figure with the seasons, spring turning to summer, fall, winter, and back to spring. That's one of those uh, natural cycles that has become ingrained in our, our thinking in so many different ways. And that's another way of thinking about revolution, coming back to the same spot. Is that really what we're after when we are calling for a revolution in the way people are, are thinking or doing things? Well, perhaps not. At any rate, a huge topic, lots to get into. So if you want to get in on the conversation, 1-800-313-9443. The phone lines are wide open. We'll be back with Aaron Friends of theageoftransitions.com right after this. back on that uh, on that note and uh, if you go carrying pictures with Chairman Mao you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow as a wise bard once said but of course we are talking about revolution tonight and you say you want a revolution well that is something that's very much in the air in the zeitgeist if you will and so returning to our guest Aaron Franz of the age of transitions.com and specifically his book revolve man's scientific rise to godhood let me just read a short passage from that book where Aaron is talking about the order of the Bavarian Illuminati, which was founded in May 1st, 1776, and was exposed, I believe, back in the 1790s. But uh, talking about the main goals of the Illuminati, uh, Aaron writes, quote, the main goals of the Illuminati were completely in line with those of the establishment period as a whole. Their aim was to challenge established institutions, the church, the state, and the monarchy. They wished to overthrow the established system in favor of something better and more logical. It was the goal of the Illuminati to establish a technocratic system of government ruled by an intelligent governing class. Science would be used to steer society intelligently, but first, the tyranny of the old world had to be destroyed. Their occult task was to destroy and rebuild. No room would remain for old superstitions within their enlightened age of reason. This new age to come would be heralded by a metaphorical new dawn. Revolution, uh, sorry, the sun would rise on the new day and bring its light to the world. Revolution was the goal of the Illuminati. A revolution is the turning of a circle, a cycle. The phoenix is reborn when history comes full circle, returning to a golden age. This is the mythical estate of paradise lost. Quite a fascinating passage from a fascinating book, Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood. So, Aaron, let's pick up from that, and really, what are the implications of the fact that these esoteric orders, which have been functioning demonstrably for centuries and presumably for millennia, that their goal is to affect this type of revolution every every now and then in order to steer society in their direction. Where does that leave the average person like you and me who are looking at this from the bottom up, so to speak? Well, it leaves us wondering about uh, any given revolution that may pop up seemingly out of nowhere. We always have to ask ourselves, well, who are um, the thought leaders involved in any given revolution? What is any given revolution's real goals? Uh, are they foggy? Are they clearly cut and defined? And if not, why is that? And um, we also have to be uh, be very mindful of our 
our own demeanor and our attitude when becoming revolutionary, if we so choose to do so. Like, uh, w- with the Illuminati specifically, of course, that was the Bavarian German, uh, order. They were, um, their ideas were basically exported from, uh, Germany, Prussia, that area to France and, um, those occult ideas were uh, used for the French Revolution. So, uh, and so much to do with the French Revolution too. So, so uh, throughout history, this is a historical process, and and I'm talking about you know we're jumping around from Germany, Bavaria to the French Revolution. We're talking about revolutions of today. It's so easy for all of us to uh, disconnect all these separate instances and see them as just separate little spots in history. Whereas if you take sort of a wider perspective and you look at it from a macro historical view, you understand that yes, actually there have been secret societies behind the very idea of revolution and this kind of greater overall revolution that pans out throughout time kind of pops up throughout separate revolutions uh, it's all leading up to a final revolution of sorts. And what I'm saying is that they are all interconnected. I mean, obviously, with the French and uh, German connection, there is just one small, uh, easily uh, easy-to-define connection. But I'm saying there's also a wider connection between just the overall revolution that happens throughout time. Well, I think you're right about that, and you raise the interesting prospect of the uh, the final revolution, which, of course, was the name of Aldous Huxley's famous speech at Berkeley in 1962, so perhaps we can get into that some more. But before we do that, I mean, let's take a look at some of these historical examples that we're talking about. And uh, and you're right to say that, I mean, there are so many different examples, and we can jump between places and times, but there are also different types of revolutions in the sense that there are the the physical, uh, you know, farmers picking up their pitchforks and marching on the Bastille kind of revolution or, you know, people picking up guns and, and shooting at the British kind of revolution. And, and we have those types of templates. But there's also mental revolutions that have taken place. Yeah. And I've often talked on this broadcast and in my podcast and other work about the revolution of consciousness. The revolution of the mind is the only revolution that matters. But even having said that, I mean, we've experienced that as a society numerous times over the centuries, and uh, it doesn't always turn out for the best, or at least it can be directed in a certain way. And one example of that, of course, is the European Enlightenment and yeah. uh, that period, which which brought about so many new revolutionary concepts and ideas, but um, as you point out in your work, has been uh, directed from its very inception by by certain um, groups. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about the Enlightenment itself. Sure, sure. Well, again, uh, we have to get back to terms. Enlightenment being uh, the actual goal of the Illuminist. The the Illuminist being, you know, the members of secret societies such as the Illuminati. They are the Illuminists, and what they seek is enlightenment. This works on many different levels. They, uh, of course, want enlightenment for the self, but um, this this has to do with alchemy as well, very detailed state. But so so the first uh, part of their enlightenment is enlightening themselves, and then uh, turning that enlightenment out into the outside world. And this is the aspect of alchemy that personally I'm I'm very interested in. That doesn't seem to get much attention in that. Uh, yes, alchemy is a process used to improve uh, the individual. Basically, it's the first version of self-help, and it's uh, 
very legitimate and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think alchemy is bad. The, the deal is when alchemy goes out into the greater world and the enlightened individual, uh, decides that it's their place to enlighten the entire world based on their own design because you know, you, they're the enlightened ones. So, um, they have to go out and, Enlighten the whole world. And I'm kind of getting off topic from the European enlightenment, but this is the philosophy behind it. And of course, the European enlightenment, um, again, their philosophy was this egalitarian, their ideal is the egalitarian government where, um, people would be equal, fraternity, equality, um, uh, liberty. Fraternity. Yeah, liberty. That's it. Yeah, those are the three, uh, tenets there. So, so it's all, it's all about, you know, uh, giving equality to the people. This eventually leads to the socialist. This is the socialist idea because it's forcing the concept of equality onto society. And how do you mandate equality is basically the problem in the end, the socialist problem. And certainly we can see, I mean, if, if we think of the French Revolution as some sort of flowering of enlightenment, we see how quickly that devolved into a type of despotism of its own. And, um, some, I think, would argue that that was pretty much inevitable based on the, the ideological roots of enlightenment and what it sought to do. And as you indicate there, enlightenment, I mean, it carries with it so many uh, esoteric and mythical associations and connotations. But of course, we can think of something like Prometheus stealing the fire from the gods and bringing it down to humans, uh, you know, enlightening humanity and, and bringing them knowledge. But, of course, that's the same knowledge, presumably, as in the, the Eden story that uh, that Satan tries to get uh, Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. I mean, it's all, always about this bringing of knowledge to the people and, and what can be done with it. And, of course, the Enlightenment has all of that wrapped up into it. It's quite a, in quite a, an incredible uh, puzzle to, to piece together. Yes, and Prometheus, of course, is stealing the fire from the gods. Fire, the great symbol of the revolutionaries. And, of course, there's James H. Billington's book, uh, Fire in the Minds of Men, which I think all of us should read to understand this topic at a much deeper level and really understand what's going on. Great book. Uh, but anyway, fire and also the color red, um, the color of revolution oftentimes is red. Um, it has to do... Again, so many, so many areas you can go into here, but part of it is actually a blood sacrifice and the coming of violence. Again, as a historical example is the French reign of terror. Uh, the intellectual elite of the revolution, um, began to just systematically plan the, uh, killing off of masses of the population just, just as a mere, um, act of uh, getting things in order, get, getting the, it, it was, uh, again, and well, you have to take care of the reactionaries, of course. Exactly. Exactly. But, but actually on, on a deeper level, this is seen as an occult sacrifice, a blood ritual, uh, passing through of fire, the color red blood fire, um, also heat rising up. So, uh, as a result of this blood sacrifice, the idea is that society is raised up to a higher level. That's that's the occult idea there. And that's interesting, because what about the idea that people then can be made to go along with this type of bloodletting and bloodshedding, because it, it is framed in that way as this type of uh, purification, almost uh, a type of um, sacrifice, as you say. Well, yeah, that's the creation of a religion, 
the and again Billington calls it the revolutionary faith and he goes as far to say as to say that the revolutionary faith is the faith of our time that's a very intense statement and very profound when you think about it the revolutionary faith because people if if you look at any given revolution and again even just small thought revolutions uh you can see true believers pop up and they are very intense if you <laughs> to say the least mm-hmm. well i think it's there's no doubt we we are being prepped as a society as a, as a civilization for some sort of cataclysmic event and um one can imagine that could take a revolutionary uh flavor very easily so on that note we will continue talking with Aaron Franz the age of transitions.com right after these messages Broadcast friends, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting here on the first day of spring, perhaps appropriately enough, for this conversation about revolution and all of the implications thereof. So perhaps we can turn to that topic for a second, Aaron. Let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, the, the start of spring and what this uh, indicates for our topic tonight, talk, thinking about revolution. Absolutely. Again, it's got very important occult significance with revolution. Revolutionaries are very, um, very keen on the idea of regeneration. And of course, regeneration is, if it's not the most integral part of the occult tradition, it's certainly one of the most important uh, concepts to wrap one's mind around. So again, the idea is regenerating mankind through the act of revolution, um, bringing birth, again, the symbol of birth, this ties into the light of the new day and the sun, all that, the sun hearkening, the new birth and all this. So, so everything, when we get into the symbolism that uh, is used in uh, by revolutionaries, it, it all ties together, but absolutely it has everything to do with regeneration, and the revolutionaries are uh, keen to talk about that. They certainly are, and perhaps we can talk about the ways that people right now in our current day and age are being conditioned to not only think about revolution more, but I think more and more to accept that a revolution is not only possible, but perhaps inevitable as we, uh, as we enter the 2012. And of course, everyone has been quite, uh, quite prepped for whatever's coming later this year in that, yeah. uh, in that sense. But of course, I mean, so many different ways and different levels in which we're being prepped for the idea that a revolution is, is inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, here's the interesting point I want to throw in here. I, I needed to uh, make sure that I got in on this broadcast, and listeners are going to get a kick out of this, I'm sure. Again, back to the French Revolution, a man named Restif de la Bretonne. Please uh, ignore my French pronunciation; it's terrible. <laughs> but anyway, he, he was a uh, he was a journalist, and he was also a member of the social circle, which is basically this intellectual elite group of revolutionaries during the French Revolution. Uh, so he was a writer. He actually invented the term communism. This guy invented the term communism. And uh, he, he had a writing where he um, said that, he suggested that a really good place for the communist experiment would actually be the planet Venus. Venus. So uh, 
I thought that was interesting. Well, I saw a correlation to modern day uh, right there. The founder of the word communism or the creator of the word communism, the idea of communism is much larger, of course, but the creator of the word said that the best place for the communist experiment would be on the planet Venus. Again, when, when, when you're dealing with these subjects, you have to notice little things that are, are symbolic and little words that pop up again and again because there's significance in it and it, it makes you understand how our point in time in the present does connect to the past. And again, the idea of, you know, the ever evolving, revolving concept of revolution moving forward throughout time. Very interesting. And let's flesh that out a little bit for people out there, because, of course, what is the occult significance of Venus, and why is that particularly important, that that would be associated with the founder of communism? Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> again, if, if you want to talk about the occult, there's a million occult um, meanings behind Venus. Uh, there's the one where, you know, it makes the five-pointed pentagram in the sky perfect, uh pentagram in the sky that's just one little thing it's also connected to uh the morning it's called the morning star and evening star this is connect connected to the character lucifer the light bearer again the light bearer bringing light uh, bearing uh bearing the light before the light of the sun itself it's so it's the light that heralds the light of the sun before it actually rises so Again, this this Lucifer character is the light bearer saying, hey, look, the sun's about to rise, and I'm telling you, um, I'm giving you the story before it actually happens. It's kind of what how that character fits into this. Also connected with Prometheus, again, the light. Uh, yeah. Bringing us enlightenment, or at least bringing us the, the herald of enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, I think that that should become... Obvious, of course. I've made that play numerous times on my podcast, the uh, the Lucifer Project. I mean, the Venus. Project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But of course, that's that's where this is heading, and and it's interesting because, of course, everything like this does start to tie into one of the the main themes of your website, of course, the Age of Transitions, which is that this does relate into our our age very specifically when we start thinking about transhumanism and the like. Yes, yes, and that is part of. The final revolution that all this actually was talking about, kind of the ultimate revolution of revolutions, is the raising up of humanity to this next level. At least uh, that's the sales pitch that we're been given for well, it. Well, that could be one interpretation of the sales pitch. But of course, I mean, Huxley was quite open in that speech about some of the, the horrific aspects of this and the ability to control people's minds and make them enjoy their servitude. Yes, well, exactly. Well, that's kind of the, well, he's getting into cold, hard reality of what all these technologies that are now being sold as, you know, our savior and it's so wonderful and it's the way to evolve. He was getting into the nitty gritty of, look, well, you know, these technologies are indeed emerging. He was saying so in the 1960s. They're emerging and the, what that means in terms of basically well, we'll get we'll get into it after we break, will. It's a very large subject, but we have a big long segment coming up, so we'll have plenty of time to get into it. And once again, if you're interested in tonight's conversation, you'd like to bring your own two cents to the table. It's one eight hundred three one three nine four four three one eight hundred three one three nine four four three, and we'll get you up and on air. And until then, we'll just uh, sit sit tight for a few minutes, and we'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Today we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where man can act directly on the mind-body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, some kind of direct action on human mind-bodies has been going on since the beginning of time, but this has generally been of a violent nature. The techniques of terrorism have been known from time immemorial, and people have employed them with more or less ingenuity, sometimes with the utmost cruelty, sometimes with a good deal of skill acquired by a process of trial and error, finding out what the best ways of using torture, imprisonment, constraints of various kinds. But as I think it was, sounds like Metternicht, said many years ago, you can do everything with something except sit on them. If you're going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. It's exceedingly difficult to see how pure terrorism can function indefinitely. It can function for a fairly long time, but I think sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Of course, those are the words of Aldous Huxley from his infamous 1962 speech, The Ultimate Revolution, and the transcript of that is online. Of course, the show notes for tonight will have that and all the other works that we're sorry, referencing tonight at corporatereport.com slash radio. But, of course, that is uh, the part of a speech in which Aldous Huxley really does lay down the, the plans of, uh, of what we see unfolding, and unfortunately his brave new world coming into view, especially now as we pass through the age of terror and into the forthcoming age of persuasion, I suppose. So, uh, Aaron, perhaps you can situate us in that transition, where you think we are in, this, in that transition right now. We're definitely in the middle of something huge. Uh, we all can understand that. We can all feel that. Uh, that just uh, gut feeling that we all have is actually the spark that um, can be used to ignite the revolutionary flame in any given individual. So it's well known that the average person can tell what's happening, is what I'm saying, and that the revolutionary... Uh, the, the actual revolutionary thought leader, the people behind uh, any given uh, uh, large-scale revolution can use that angst that we feel against us. So, so that's a theme that we definitely want to hit tonight on this show, I'm sure, James. And then also in terms of Huxley's ultimate revolution, that's where this whole thing is going. We're talking about um, the emergence of all these converging technologies, things like um, brain-machine interface, uh, brain implants, virtual realities, artificial intelligences, these sort of things, the whole transhuman concept, uh, these things are coming about. They're coming about, um, I wouldn't even say slowly, but surely they're coming back rather quickly now. And this moment in time is when everybody is beginning to notice that things are happening fast. So, so we're in a rapid state of change here, and we're all beginning, we're just now understanding that, and <laughs> we're put in the position where where we say, well, what do we do about it? And uh, that's the difficult situation we all find ourselves in. I don't have any easy answer as to what to do about that, but it's uh, we're all in this boat together, and we got to figure, uh, figure something out. Well, exactly right, because it seems to me that's the point of the whole dialecta, dialectic is to get us into that position. What are what are we going to do about it so that we have to do, you know, some drastic measure? And the uh, mm-hmm. usual idea is that some big, you know, event is going to come along and, and change everything, and, and that will take care of our problems when, of course, as we know, it 
generally creates more problems than it takes care of. But on that note, we do have a caller waiting on the line, and uh, once again, the lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. But uh, we have Ryan in Texas on the line, so let's go to Ryan. Thank you so much for calling in tonight. What's on your mind? Hey, guys. Uh, uh, thanks for taking my call. I just uh, I had two quick questions. Um, looking at the uh, – obviously, because I'm in Texas, just looking at the situation in America today um, – how do you think, uh, in the sense of a revolution, do you think the elites see us as, as a culture? Do you think we're, we're being prepped for, for a revolution, or, or are they, are they um, I'm not quite sure how to put it. Are, do you think they're preparing us for some sort of revolution? Uh, short answer, yes. <laughs> we're definitely um, being prepared for change, change generally. And everybody at this point in time is in tune with the concept that everything is broken socially, politically, uh, morally, and intellectually even too. Everybody is aware that uh, we don't know what we're doing and everything is wrong. So everybody is on board with the um, project to change. Now, the, the complication comes in, well, what will the change be? And this is where we uh, have to be aware and say, okay, uh, a change is going to come. What's it, where's it, from what direction is it going to come? And uh, is it going to be presented to us? And if so, by who, et cetera, et cetera. These are things we have to think about. Right. So my next question would be, uh, you feel that, would you feel that it's being uh, necessarily being quote unquote manufactured for the masses for us to be ready uh, to be uh, thrust into some sort of situation? Yeah, I, I think the I, I think we're all being uh, terrified in many ways, on many different levels of terror. Of course, going back to the nine eleven event, that was one sort of uh, initial initiation into this whole terrorism campaign we're being scared into believing that uh we're not safe whatsoever that is, so there's basically no way out there's no way out except for destruction the inevitable violence of revolution we can see that on the horizon we're we're given that as an inevitability and i mean i could point to many different instances in entertainment media and whatnot that are just pushing our thoughts generally in this direction of fear. We are being terrified. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Have a good night. Well, thank you yeah. for the call and thank you for those questions. Absolutely. I think I agree wholeheartedly. It does seem that we are being put into this state of, of terrifying fear, paralyzing fear almost. And it does make you beg, it does sort of beg the question, what are they going to put as the savior out there? And it's interesting that you bring up the idea that we're all being prepped to accept and embrace and welcome change. And of course, we have seen that as kind of a cultural meme popping up in the last several years. And we, we saw, for example, the rise of We Are Change as a sort of independent alternative media activism tool of, of people taking and claiming, you know, YouTube and places like that to, to, to help shape the political discourse. And we saw that almost immediately co-opted by the Obama campaign. And the interesting thing about that, to my mind, is that Obama, I think, has quite clearly ruined that term for the, for the powers that be. I mean, I don't think they could ever use change as, 
as the same kind of rallying cry as they did back in 2008, because everyone saw what came of that. So it's almost like a destruction of everything, even the concept of change. Yes, yeah, it's it's multifaceted for sure. I mean, definitely just this struggle against the impossible to define establishment is uh, on full tilt right now with uh, demonstrated with things like Occupy Wall Street. We've got um, the low-level, ground-level revolutionaries all fired up, and they don't know what they're doing at all. And again, this is the idea. We're not we're not ever supposed to know what we're doing. We're supposed to just be reactionary. We're supposed to be the again the fire of revolution. We're burning with emotion. We're burning up, but we're not. We're that aspect of the fire, and whereas. Uh, the in- intellect, the intellectual version of the fire is the occult hidden version by those who are, you know, attempting at least to steer revolutions to their ends. And whether they'll be successful or not, well, that depends on us. Well, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it, this all seems to come back to our own agency, because ultimately, if they're relying on us just to be the bodies on the streets, just to uh, just to swell the crowds and make it look like a movement and to, to reach that critical mass in our society, well, then... Clearly, our only option really is to is to be the counter to that, to to withhold ourselves from that system, and to to not go along with the crowds wherever they might be being swept. That's right. Yeah, it's a, the answer is using your mind, <laughs> using your mind, and also uh, being peaceful, being peaceful. Because again, the, the violent aspect of revolution. If you give in to that, then then you've lost. So we we have to be. And I, I know how difficult that could be in a given situation where, you know, violence is almost necessary to survive. So, so if we're thrown into some sort of survival situation, uh, again, it, it takes wits to survive that, that you don't, you don't survive by brute force. You survive, um, your, your attitude. And this is basic survival, just your attitude and knowing just a sense of knowing that you can survive is number one. It's not like having a stockpile of weapons. It's not like being the toughest guy in the world. It's it, it, it's it's just an attitude, and and, and it's a knowing. It's, it's intelligence. Well, I think you're you're right about that, and it does sort of. Uh, how do I say this? I mean, I, it, you're you're right that the survival, when it comes down to that mode, when they put us into that survival reactionary mode, I think people will know what to do simply by instinct, if by nothing else. And, and that might even be a better way of, of reacting to the world than we have right now, where our minds are being co-opted by, you know, the establishment media and all of that, which are telling us what to, what to do and to, what to consume on a daily basis. Well, if it ever does come to the big economic collapse and the martial law roundups and things like that, I think people will know how to react to that. But, uh, but the point, it, to, to my mind, the far more insidious point is the one that Aldous Huxley is making in that speech, which is, yes, I mean, there have been various ways that uh, people have been terrorized since time immemorial, and it's usually phys- physical coercion. But what he's talking about is a much, much more insidious plot to really occupy our minds, to take over <laughs> our our agency, our, who we are as individuals, and to really replace that with what the elite want, which is a pliable mass of zombies for all intents and purposes. Yeah, well, that's that's the big thing to remember is that um, the end goal here is uh, our free will, our consciousness, our sovereignty over that, and um, it, it looks to be that it's in trouble at this moment. That it could be taken away from us, and that 
certain uh, elements in this world would like to take that away from us. So we have to keep our eyes on that and understand that that's really the ultimate thing to hold on to at all uh, costs and be mindful of uh, this strange age of transitions that we're in, what all these uh, emerging technologies mean. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't say I disagree with anything that, that's been brought up tonight, but the, the, I mean, I think probably most people out there will still have that nagging sense that, well, what is the, what, what are we to do then? Because obviously yeah, that's yeah. what we're all wondering. And <laughs> yeah. to just say that, you know, to, to retain your sense of individuality, use your, your, your mind instead of mm-hmm. reacting violently. I mean, it's, it, it all makes sense on a certain level, but what does that actually translate into in a given situation? And I think yeah. that can be extremely frustrating for everyone out there. Yeah, well, every, that's the thing. Everybody wants a catch-all answer. Everybody wants the solution to the problem. And the great problem with living is that there never is a such a thing as a catch-all answer. There's no uh, cookie-cutter answer you can give for any one person to live their life. And, and there's there's no such thing as the meaning of, of life because the meaning of life is what every individual person finds out and makes for themselves. They get to make their own life. And so this is really the same problem in a different form is that, you know, what are we going to do? I need someone to tell me what to do. Well, no, you don't. You, you just need to do whatever it is that you have to do. And it's about finding whatever that is. And it's uh, next to impossible. Well, it, I know it's impossible for any other person to tell you what to do. It, it, that's not how it works. So, so actually talking about the subject is quite difficult because you can't give people the solution. There's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you're right. It has to come from within. And uh, and again, that that's a, a truism in almost. I mean, it's almost impossible to, to argue against that. But again, what does it mean for each individual person? Well, unfortunately, you have to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> Well, let's let's approach this from a different angle then, because it, it it leaves the impression then that that revolution is itself this tainted concept and nothing good can come of it. But uh, for example, I mean, in my own personal story, back in 2006 when I started really encountering 9/11 Truth and other information that really fundamentally destroyed the old paradigm that I was living in, the the left and the right, and you know they're they're battling it out and, and things like that. I mean, that was the political paradigm I was coming at this from, and. I started to encounter all this information that showed me, oh, wait, no, things are much, much different than what I've been told. And I started, you know, thinking for myself and researching for myself. That was really a revolution in consciousness that happened. And I think it has demonstrably affected my life. And I'd like to think it's for the better. I mean, I think I'm more actively engaged. I'm more aware. I know what's what's happening now. I know how better to prepare myself for what's likely to come and things like that. So, I mean, there there can be a positive aspect to mental revolution, can there not? Yes, absolutely. And that whole process of awakening and self and self-improvement again in the occult tradition is known as the process of alchemy. And that's actually the occult process of alchemy is a good thing. And again, what I'm saying is that um, the greater macrocosmic perspective of someone who feels the need to take control over others. So it's 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 a very there's there's a very thin line here that uh we're resting on and we could go on and on about this for hours but it's very complex but yes absolutely the revolution in consciousness is a good thing and again one of the problems being that it's a never-ending thing for each person is once you start it's uh 
it continues onward. So it's a whole lifetime worth of work that you have ahead of yourself. Well, and, you know, well, that's true. I mean, we say that, but we say that almost inductively because every other generation in history has had to, you know, live their life and live it out completely. And once they do, they've, they've affected whatever mental revolutions and then they come to the end of their life, etc. But we are actually entering an age where technologically we will be biologically different creatures in at least, you know, a hundred years, probably much, much less. So uh, we're starting to, to really encounter fundamental questions about what it even means to, to live that type of life that every other generation in human history has ever lived. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big question. Now. So, so that's what's causing all the angst again. And we have to address that issue because we all know it's happening. So now uh, the time has come for us to try to get a hold on what all this means and try to work it out so that, you know, we do steer things in a good direction. Well, it is about that steering, and uh, it really is a question of who's the captain of your ship, I suppose. And if you uh, uh, basically let someone else do that, if you devolve the power over to someone else, then uh, then you have basically abdicated responsibility for your own life. And uh, we can't let that happen. I think that's the first and foremost uh, lesson for tonight, if there is a, a lesson <laughs> that we could wrap up in a bow. I mean, I think certainly people have to take agency over their own lives and their own minds especially now as our minds are being increasing, increasingly affected and infested by all the memes that are out there. And as the technology starts to overgrow our own biology, I think that's one of the most terrific aspects of all of this. But on that note, we'll take another short break, and we'll be back to finish things up tonight with Aaron Franz of theageoftransitions.com right after this. We are here on Corporate Report Radio tonight, this Tuesday night, the first day of spring, talking to Aaron Franz of TheAgeOfTransitions.com. We've been talking about revolution and the future of humanity and getting into some of the big picture issues that really underlie everything that we talk about here on Corporate Report Radio. So, uh, Aaron, just such a monumentally huge topic that there's no way we can possibly do it justice in this one-hour conversation, but uh, in just in the final few minutes here, any further thoughts you'd like to add or leave people with as we uh, ponder this this topic more deeply? Sure. Again, with the communist revolution in Soviet Russia, their idea, they put forth this idea of the new man. That was uh, big uh, there. And this new man concept is, again, very important within the cult tradition generally. The new man is uh, the man reborn, reborn of fire, Again, the fire of revolution, blood red, red being the color of communism, all ties together. Uh, the new man itself is the new man for this ultimate revolution who is not a man anymore, but a transhuman, a posthuman. That's the ultimate goal of the ultimate revolution is to make a literal new man, not just a metaphorical uh, allegorical new man. This is they're talking about a literal transformation of the human race, <laughs> perhaps even into star children. Um, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. The more the more I watch two thousand one, the more I realize Kubrick knew what was happening. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. On that esoteric note, I certainly hope people have watched two thousand one and not read it. I don't like the book at all, but I thought the movie was. <laughs> 
fascinating, but certainly Kubrick was an insider of some sort. At any rate, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your work here at the last minute or two here. You, of course, are at theageoftransitions.com. That's also the title of your uh, your DVD, your documentary on that subject, which was released back in 2008. You have Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood, which was released in paperback back in 2010. Perhaps you can tell people how they can get their hands on that. Yes, and I'd like to take this opportunity to publicly thank you, James, for writing the foreword to the second edition of Revolve, my book, which uh, is now available. I've actually uh, I've ordered the copies of it, so uh, the second edition is coming in with a foreword by James Corbett of the Corbett Report, so thank you for that. Well, thank you for letting me have that opportunity. It truly is an honor because it is such an important book. So that's why I would wholeheartedly recommend people get it. And uh, and if they're interested in that second edition, any idea on when that will be shipping? Um, I, I should have copies of that in in about half a month's time. Uh, I did upload the file, the new file, to Amazon. So that should be, if it's not available today, then uh, within a couple of days' time, the new edition with your foreword should be available from Amazon.com. Again, the book is Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise of Godhood. And just check theageoftransitions.com. That's where you can order the book in paperback version. If you order it, I, I will um, certainly mail it to you as soon as I can. Excellent. Very good. All right. And uh, any further documentaries coming along? Yes, absolutely. I'm working on The Age of Transitions 2, and this is the reason why uh, posts on my website have been sparse lately, so um, apologies to all my regular listeners and uh, readers. I'm working hard on the new documentary, and it will be done before 2012 is over. Excellent. Well, I, I certainly can't wait for that. Um, perhaps it should drop on December 21st, just to play with people's <laughs> minds. There we go. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, Aaron, always a pleasure to have you on. We'll have to have you on again to continue going through these types of subjects because obviously just too much to handle in one conversation. But Aaron Franz, theageoftransitions.com, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, James. All right. And thank you to all of you out there for listening and for investing your time and mental energies in this program. And once again, I certainly hope that we can do it again tomorrow night. So I'll see you in 23 hours. <laughs> <laughs>